Right now, Amazon is offering some amazing extra perks that come with a job offer. If you start a warehouse job, you can get a $1,000 sign-on bonus. That means you start earning a paycheck right away, plus you get extra cash to use before the holidays. Applying is so easy, you don't even need an interview. It's never been so rewarding to start an hourly job that's close to home. So what are you waiting for? To join the team today, visit Amazon.com slash sign-on bonus. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Podcast Network. We deal with the good, the bad, and the inexplicable of movies starring about or directed by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broader range of musical and cinematic genres, from country to hip hop, documentaries to sci fi. I'm Graham Williamson, film critic for The Geek Show and Horrified, and this week I've been joined by Ewan Gledo. You can find me on Northern Lights, Geek Show, obviously, and Cult Following. For a while, the 90s were looking a lot like the 60s in Britain. We had a new Labour government, a plausible shot at the World Cup, and our pop music was making waves all over the world. And just as we were all wondering which of our achingly credible indie bands would be the first to conquer America like the Beatles did, they were leapfrogged by the campiest, silliest item on the menu, the Spice Girls. After that, it only remained to make the tie-in movie Spice World, which brings us here today. As they say on Arrakis, the spice must flow. Ewan, here's a more complicated question than it might appear. What is the Spice Girls' legacy? I think their legacy is that they were a good pop band. They ushered in a new wave of music in mm. Britain. Because, you know, you had Britpop for that five-year period before the Spice Girls came in. And then all of a sudden, it's it's flashy clothing. It's back to really five-piece groups like the Spice Girls and then Coldplay came along and you had Radiohead. They're obviously very different to the Spice Girls, but that pop attitude came back, mm. which was, you know, regardless of what you think of their music and the movie, it's um, their, their legacy can definitely be defined as they sort of brought back a genre that hadn't been seen in, in decades. Yeah, because I think you can't really understand the Spice Girls in my book without understanding why Britpop happens and I think an underappreciated reason why Britpop happens is that is that late 80s mainstream pop was so bad yeah but, you definitely. know <laughs> it, it is not a normal state of affairs for the great British record buying public to actually want to listen to northern guitar bands on independent record labels but Mel and Kim forced us into it yeah uh, so I think part of the implicit promise of the Spice Girls when they first came out was, all right, here's an old-fashioned pop band who were bright enough and brash enough to compete with Britpop on its own turf. And the image is kind of Britpoppy too, the Union Jack dress, the bus in this film, it's all playing with that same kind of 60s iconography. Yeah. I think for it was Britpop that sort of. I remember the 
it was either the I think it was Select in nineteen ninety three when they had Brett Anderson from Suede on the front cover in front of the Union Jack. Mm. And then it's sort of that although Britpop sort of died out, that image of being proud of the Union Jack for the music and the pop scene really sort of that that didn't go away for a long, long time. And the Spice yeah. Girls sort of kicked a bit of life into it. Yeah, it's a fair point. You can well imagine that that's arc would have ended without them because by this film came out in 1997 by that time Blur have released an album that is mostly influenced by Sonic Youth and Pavement Oasis have slipped into self-parody Pulp are one year out from releasing This Is Hardcore, there's not a lot of sort of cheerfully patriotic good spirits going on here It was sort of a a sign that the party was over and that it it wasn't a fact that the Spice Girls were in the right place at the right time. I think it was inevitable that a new wave of music would come in and they just sort of took the reins in that regard. Mm. They, they knew it had to be done. Yeah, and I think they had the benefit of getting in like a year or so before it would have become necessary. I think... definitely. You know, if if this hadn't happened, you'd have had people running around in 1998 listening to This Is Hardcore and going, well, what, what happened to pop? Where did pop go? What the hell? Uh, what could have been? <laughs> what could have been? Legal disclaimer, I absolutely adore This Is Hardcore, but... Um, possibly one of the greatest albums ever written. Yeah. Tr- tricky, tricky to sell to uh, oh, the definitely yeah, which is is why I think that there was a lot of fevered brows in the industry that were mopped by the Spice Girls attaining prominence. Yeah. I think it's quite a nice ballast, though. This is hardcore and Spice World. It's sort of the mindset of the people on the way out compared to who was coming in. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And Spice World is kind of an odd film anyway because it is almost as cynical as this is hardcore there is like a a level to it where it is openly mocking the very idea that anyone should be interested in a spice girls movie in a way that feels really unwise (laughs) it's um yeah because i mean to talk about the movie itself i Mm. I'll ask you first, actually. What did you actually think of the movie? I mean, I think there are large stretches of it that are terrible. And every now and then there is a moment that makes me think, oh, right, that's what it could have been. And that there are also whole performances in it where I can't decide whether they're good or not. But I guess we'll get into that because this has a a, a Robert Altman movie of a (laughs) guest cast for some reason. It's, oh, we'll, we'll get to that. Because what I was going to say was, it was what you said about how it mocks the sort of feel of the times and stuff. There's one scene in it very late on in the film where Richard E. Grant is at a bar mm. and he's, oh, is this the part where we ruin our working relationship? And it, yeah. that was sort of, it, it would have been so on the nose and like a wink at the camera if it weren't just a bad film. <laughs> it, would yeah, have, yeah. it would have worked if there was a bit of power behind it, but it's, it's I, a strange one. I mean, it, it gets off on a bad foot by essentially inviting comparisons to the film that we covered on this show last week, which is A Hard Day's Night, which yes, yeah. I understand fully why someone trying to make a pop cash-in movie would want to look to A Hard Day's Night 
but it is a fight that this movie cannot win. I mean, for one thing, the thing that surprised me the most is that A Hard Day's Night is just like this amphetamine hit of energy. It's the most energizing movie. And I have seen Bella Tarr films that were faster paced than this thing. (laughs) Pretty sure Damnation got through the first that quicker than Spice Spice World did. It's um, I mean, even if you look at the posterous Spice World, that sort mm. of they're all jumping up in the air like they were on a hard day's night on the poster, where they're in yeah. the street and they're jumping. It's, I don't, I don't know if it's mockery. I do think that's just, oh, the, the Beatles did it, and we're like the modern Beatles. We'll mm. do that. So I think it's of an honest nature that they've done it. But obviously, to say, oh, we're like the Beatles, is a bold claim for any band to make. Yes, yeah. I mean, somewhere there is a parallel universe where, like, the Britpop bands weren't as resistant to <laughs> making movies, where there's, like, an Oasis version of Help or something. Which, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but this is what we got. I think I was trying to work out why it bothered me, because some of my favourite bits in A Hard Day's Night are the more cynical bits, the bits with, like, George Harrison mocking the fashion photographer and stuff like that. Yeah. I think the problem is is that the Beatles were undercutting something that you did not expect to be undercut. This is rock and roll stardom in its infancy with the hottest new band. You don't expect it to be mocking its own apparatus. Whereas everyone knew the Spice Girls were a manufactured band. And in fact, that was part of their selling point. It's like, oh, here you've got like a bunch of stage school kids who, you know, have been drawn together by a talent scout and have their own kind of manufactured personalities. You haven't had that in a long time. It's fun. Yeah. And it seems so strange to me to be mocking the artifice of something that everyone knew was artificial. It's like when you have that bizarre subplot with the film producer played by George Went from Cheers, who's saying, oh, who cares if they can act? You know, they're the latest thing. Yes, and it's like, yeah, yeah that, that, was, that was exactly what people went into the cinema thinking. So yeah. what, what's I'll, the level I'll hold of satire? Yeah, yeah. I'll, um, I'll say this. I don't think their acting in this is bad. I think it's, it's serviceable. Um, I think there there is a spectrum of it for me, but yes, yeah, um, yeah. Co- considering such, like you said, the Altman like cast, that's yeah, you've got such a range of you know these people shouldn't be here, but it's quite a good performance that spoofs their old work, like Roger Moore. Hmm. But then you've got someone like Alan Cumming, who's sort of shoehorned into this plot where he's a documentary filmmaker following hmm. them around, but I'm I'm pretty sure he doesn't actually interact with any of them, and he's just sort of there in the background. And yeah. it, it felt like a wasted opportunity. I do think a lot of the subplots in this film sort of amalgamate into just this big blob where they thought, oh, great, we've got this person into the film. He's relatively famous or she's relatively famous. We need them to do something. But, you know, we haven't got time to film with the Spice Girls, so we'll just pop them around in the background. Yeah, but, I completely agree with you about that subplot, and particularly with the Alan Cumming thing. I mean... No shade on Alan Cumming, but you've already got a newspaper photographer in it and you've got a film producer in it. So what does a documentary filmmaker add that can't be covered by those other two things? I mean, nothing. Exactly. It's it's the fact that there's two such similar 
styles. You've got the documentary filmmaker by Alan Cumming, and then you've got the photographer by, I think it's Richard O'Brien, isn't it? Richard O'Brien, yeah, who credit oh. to him is having a lot of fun here. He, he, he's, he's always a lot of fun to watch on screen. I remember him in shock treatment. It's just, he's, he's an energy like no other. Yeah. But here he's having fun. I don't see why they couldn't just put those two together, those mm. two roles at least. Not as in pair Alan Cummings and Richard O'Brien, that'd be quite the oh, pair. Oh. <laughs> but I think if if you're going to have a documentary filmmaker whose sole purpose in plot is to follow the Spice Girls and then have a photographer working for a tabloid mockery of what I assume is the sun mm. following the Spice Girls, then why not just put them both together? Have, have it layered like that instead yeah. of, you know, there's too much going on and there's not enough time to deal with it. It got to the point where I was genuinely quite excited when two plot strands paid off and tied together at the end. It's like, oh, whoa, that's a level of basic competence I wasn't expecting. There's there's so much that just isn't worth it. Like, none yeah. of it really pays off. There's, I, I don't remember what happened to Richard O'Brien. I'm pretty sure they were in a hospital when their friend was pregnant. They've had a baby and they're in the corridor and he pops out of nowhere. And they're like, yeah. what are you doing? And then that's it. That next scene, they're in a taxi on the way to, to play their concert. And it's, <laughs> it's I, like, I understand that we're not going to get extreme quality or consistency from a, a film that is basically a, a vehicle for a factory-made pop band. Hmm. But at the very least, you'd expect sort of an understanding that these subplots need to be finished. Because mm, the, these yeah. people who they got for the movie are professionals, you know? They yeah. got Richard E. Grant, they got Roger Moore. I'm pretty sure they got um, Claire Rushbrook as well from Secrets and Lies. And there is a scene, isn't there, in the closing credits <laughs> where they do lines from Secrets and Lies in there. This movie has Mike Lee references in. Baby Spice does a Mike Lee reference at the, at the end <laughs> credits. And it's... <laughs> I, I, I haven't got the words for it. It, it was like I just had it beamed in from a different reality. It's like, <laughs> right, well, what a way to end the movie. I, I can imagine the seven people on the initial release who understood that reference. Because I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the two audiences connect that much. They don't have a lot of... Uh, That's of, not a crossover um, fan base, is No, there? they don't have too many consistencies with one another. But, like... I guess it's because that film came out around the time. Like, it was 96, yeah. wasn't it? So it was yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah. But surely there's some more relevant pictures to put in, <laughs> or, or at least more popular stuff. You know, you've got Richard E. Grant, who was in Withnell and I. I mean, <laughs> no, we, no references. We've mentioned Richard E. Grant a few times, and this is the thing. This is the one that was making me think, is this performance good? Because I feel like I have no reference point for what Richard E. Grant is doing in this. I really like Richard E. Grant as a performer. I think Me too. here it's that sort of have you have you seen him on Twitter where he'll upload these videos and he'll just be, you know, sat on his sofa and then just start laughing and he's really happy. <laughs> yes. And I don't know why, but it, his performance in Spice Will reminds me of that. So I think rather than it being a bad performance i think he's just having a lot of fun and doesn't really care as much or wants to apply himself as much to something that you know isn't going to win him awards or anything like that i think this is just sort of a release for him it's where he can bring that manic energy that we know he can do and he's just sort of saying all right this is what you're getting you're going to get this sort of manic swinging character where it just from one end of the pendulum it's you know, hard line. He it seems like he hates the Spice Girls at times, so he yes. can't have fun. 
and then it leaps the other way and it's like where have they gone i care for them <laughs> it's so weird <laughs> it's, it is such a strange performance and i i think maybe you're right because obviously richard e grant is a national treasure now and oh part, absolutely part of the reason for that is because he is capable of just goofing around and laughing at himself so much but at the yes. time this was made, he was doing stuff like Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. So I guess there is kind of a pent-up, goofy energy in him that he is letting out here. I mean, if we look at something like How to Get Ahead in Advertising, that energy's you know always there. Yeah. I think it's never faded away. But when you think about what he was doing, like you said, he did Scorsese, he did Jack and Sarah uh, yeah. two years before this. He was gearing himself up to be sort of the poster boy for, you know, throw a bath to my way or something like that. And then he does the Spice Spice World movie and it sort of undoes a lot of the work he'd been doing to that point. And in, yeah, and in a strange way, he maybe needed to do that because I can't imagine like award season habitue Richard E. Grant would be as much fun. Yeah. I don't. I think this is a release he needed at the time mm. from doing those sort of awards-heavy movies. I mean, in terms of people who were in major awards baits, the most incredible one that I found out about is someone who did not make the final cut of this movie, uh, which is originally there was going to be a cameo from Gary Oldman. Really? I didn't know that. And I tried to, he couldn't do it because of his schedule. And I was trying to work out what was Gabby Oldman doing at this point that prevented him from being in Spice World. It might have been nil by mouth. Right, okay. Just think about Gabby Oldman going That's... off the set of nil by mouth <laughs> and going on to the <laughs> oh, set I'm of very Spice sorry, World. I can't come in to shoot the scenes today. I've got to record my Spice World cameo. That's... <laughs> 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 I'm very sorry, I've got to do a scene with Baby Spice. <laughs> I mean, speaking of cameos, there's a lot of people that apparently I've got a very old man's music taste, but there's a lot of people I recognise. You know, you've got Elvis Costello, Elton John, Bob Bob Geldof's in it for a bit as well. He's yeah. got quite a lengthy cameo compared to the other two. I was looking um, forward to the Elvis Costello cameo, but it's I was, yeah. pretty negative. It's pretty quick, but yeah. I, I read an interview he did about Spice World a couple of years after. And he explained it, and it was he said it was quite ironic because I think it was a year before he filmed the scene as a bartender, he'd gone teetotal. Right. So, but no, I think it was just nice to see. I didn't think it'd be that late into the film when yeah, you saw it. I yeah. thought it'd be a throwaway cameo like the Jonathan Ross one at the start. I but was expecting they, something like the Jules Holland one where it plays yes, into him yeah. being a musician. But yeah, it, it, it is quite an odd thing to throw in very late yeah. in the film they they held that card very close to their chest they they weren't giving up us uh, <laughs> elvis costello too early elvis costello for elvis costello in spice world is like tilda swinton in avengers end game just when you think they're all cameoed out bang there they come <laughs> i think it's like the, the final 20 minutes is it's a really big rush job and it's mm. sort of all right we've got to amalgamate all these subplots into one uh we've got time for elvis costello bring him in and they yeah, just sort of wheel yeah. him out into a bar and then it's odd like you could cut that entire scene the film would be no different you could cut yeah. all the cameos and it'd be no different and it is rushed too i mean it i 
tr I don't want to judge something made in the 90s by modern special effects standards, but this had a pretty decent budget and it has some of the worst yeah. green screen I've seen since like John Pertwee, the Doctor Who. <laughs> it, it is ghastly. It's it's below par for if you think about sort of what cgi was happening in the 90s you know you had the matrix two years later you had jurassic park in 92 mm. and i'm not saying spice world's gonna have the same budget as that yeah but the technology was clearly there to do at least something oh more yeah and it's upstanding and it's like it's it's green screen you know it predates cgi it's a pretty basic yeah. effects technique there's no reason why a big film from this either should look as bad as this but yeah i don't know i think saying that though i do mm. think the actual sets that they have especially towards the end of that nightclub it does capture the sort of feeling of the late 90s yeah uh yeah i i am interested in this film primarily as a kind of late 90s artifact i mean there's a joke about teletubbies in there and it, it brought <laughs> see i got to... that one <laughs> see, there, there was a time when people just could not handle teletubbies and they thought it was the strangest thing they'd ever seen so yeah that that brought it all back um i think it's inevitably there are going to be cameos and jokes in this film that sort of either don't age well because the the subject's just been forgotten about Mm. Or just because it it doesn't really make sense by today's standards, and I think Spice World does have some of those, but I don't think it has enough where it's all right. These are getting a bit inconsistent, but um, it yeah, doesn't got quite have that. Yeah, it it need maybe it's, it needed a bit more of that kind of Proustian quality, a bit more of that. Oh, I remember that feel. Yeah, because you know you've got they they throw in a Poirot reference at, mm -hmm. with Hugh Laurie, and I thought. Yeah, okay. I mean, Poirot is a timeless character and nobody's ever going to forget him. That's, you know, fair enough. But then, like you said, there's Teletubbies one. So it's sort of balancing it out in, in all of these weird ways. I think one of the things that I found frustrating about it is that there isn't a consistent level of reality. And I'm not saying that in a sort of film crit way. I actually yeah, I... think if this existed at a complete cartoon level all the way through, it would be tons better. But yeah. you, you do keep cutting back from scenes like the one which introduces, um, oh, what's his name? Um, the guy who plays Dame Edna Everidge, Barry Humphreys. Yes, that... oh, yeah. The one that introduces him is active parody. It exists on no <laughs> level of reality. You know, it's a joke about filmic conventions. And then yeah. it gets back to bit. You know, after that, it becomes a comedy that has fantasy sequences. And you think, well, why, why do you need fantasy sequences? It started raining inside someone's office. You know, what it's... limits of reality do you need to transgress? And that's the thing. I think it's it's more frustrating than anything else because the, the scene with Barry Humphreys and the bit with Richard E. Grant at the bar, those are signs of strong mockery of a genre that has been oversaturated by cliché. The problem Spice World has is that the, the, the scenes around those brief moments mm. fall into the actual clichés they're trying to criticise. Yeah, yeah. It's such a very simple narrative structure. And mm. then maybe two or three scenes where it's like, brief criticism of the genre that they're in and then it's back to it it's back to the nine to five of following the spice girls around london yeah yeah so i think that's very true and i think the girls themselves become 
better actors when they're in a more over-the-top scene. I have a weird fondness for the scene where they imagine themselves in the future as a load of inexplicably (laughs) northern mums. I think there's just a joy in performance there that I wanted more of. Yeah, I think there are definite scenes where it's sort of that energy comes to life and they bring it out and they display it quite well. And then there's scenes that are sort of they're put together in a way that should utilize that energy, but they just can't for whatever reason. Like the, the bit with the boat where the mm. two kids who won a meeting with the Spice Girls go onto the bus and they're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to escape and steal a boat. And it's, it's got that manic energy to it, but the people involved just can't bring themselves to finish it off. Yeah. And I think also it, it's partly a directing problem because, as I said before, that for something that is aiming to be absolute manic fourth wall breaking farce directorially you're not talking about hell's a pop in here it's quite leaden and it's strange because bob spears the director has directed a lot of the all-time great television sitcoms he directed episodes of faulty towers absolutely fabulous you think he he should understand this kind of energy but it's not there i think i mean bob spears he clearly has a background in comedy, he knows what he's doing. Do you think then it's just sort of that step up from television to filmmaking? I'm not saying yeah. one is better than the other, but it's sort of a bigger scale. But it's a different skill set, isn't it? Particularly when yeah. you're looking at, you're not looking at television as it is now, where it breaks its own back to be considered cinematic. You're looking at television like Faulty Towers, which is essentially, and I say this loving faulty towers but it's essentially filmed theater yeah you've got a bunch of actors they're on a stage set it there's no naturalism to it but that doesn't matter and it's just about capturing that energy of a performance whereas when you talk about something that has you know bus driving stunts and fantasy sequences you have to create that energy through the actual filmmaking which maybe Maybe that just isn't his skill set. I don't know. I'd agree with you on that one. I don't. I don't think it's his skill set to sort of pair the two. But even then, he doesn't quite capture the energy of the Spice Girls consistently enough to make it work. You know, mm. it was like you just mentioned there. The, I forgot all about that bus chase scene with posh Spice behind the wheel of the bus, and then the other yes. four are on the top of the bus, and it's it's so bizarre and I think they're trying to get away with oh it's so zany and weird that it works but Mm. it's just I think it's 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 one of those examples where it's better on paper than it is in practice yeah yeah completely I mean in terms of like flashes of what it could have been that there are moments particularly after Richard E. Grant has that big screaming round with them and walks off. There are moments where it's just them interacting together that has a sort of... The, the chemistry between them works, and it's not any great shakes, but it feels like the performance is more organic than it is for the rest of it. A lot of the rest of it is basically, hello, I am X Spice. Here is my X characteristic, which I will now talk about for a bit. That's the thing. It was even that. I, I felt like that was in part sort of a knock at, um, not, not just how filmmaking cliches sort of shoehorn people into stereotypes, but also the wider view that the Spice Girls were these one-note people, where they're on the bus, and the bus is segmented and fits 
and yeah. their, their, their seating arrangements are set to their personality. So Sporty Spice has a, a, a bicycle machine. It's like <laughs> the the dressing room for uh, Posh Spice is sort of like very, you know... This fabulous Versace it's, it's, closet, yeah. And it's like, I get the criticism and I understand what they're going for, but it doesn't work if you are then doing that exact exactly. thing that you're criticising. And it's, yeah. it, it is frustrating because I see the intention and the intention is genuinely quite wholehearted and it's good and I don't think they set off to do this film as a cash and I think they signed on to do this film because they actually wanted to. Mm. Mm. I think that the one moment where it breaks through that is there is this weirdest shit running joke which uh, I wish there'd been more stuff like this where Jerry Halliwell has a a great interest in marine life Oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is so far out of left field that it actually kind of tickled me by that point (laughs) There was just I think it was because uh, I guarantee you they had holes in the script and they were like, we need to fill this. Um, Jerry, what have you been looking at this week? Oh, I've been reading a book on marine biology. Brilliant. (laughs) Give us a few facts of that. We'll pop it in the script. You're a marine biologist. And that was it. And it does work. It's that energy again where that randomness does Mm. work there. But I don't think you can have a full feature length film relying solely on random interactions that might be funny. Mm. A lot of it, again, it sounds good on paper, you know, the Spice Girls steal two children and then a boat, and Richard E. Grant <laughs> chases after them in a purple zoot suit. It sounds great, and it sounds really funny, but in practice, the way it's shot and the way it's framed, it just isn't up to scratch, and I think it's because the, the Bob Spears' direction isn't up to the task of sort of capturing that magic that the Spice Girls do bring. Uh, like, the Spice Girls aren't a bad pop group. I mean, it's not my cup of tea, but the actual album that ties in with the movie is relatively solid. They released some good singles that are, you know, still relatively popular today. I, I had um, forgotten what a fearsome you worm. Who do you think you are? Is I oh, mean, I listened, I watched this film two days ago, and it's still stuck in my head. Who do you think you are? And then it was um, wannabe as well. I remember that on Chicken Run from years oh, yeah, gone by. Yeah. It was just there's there's a weird karaoke bit with. I think Chicken Run was like around the time the Spice Girls were splitting up too, 2003. Yeah, 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 it'll have been close to that because Wallace yeah. and Gromit in the Curse of the Were Rabbit was 2005. I remember that because yeah. I've got it on the front of my letterboxed page and it's just like taunting <laughs> me about how old I am every time I log in. Oh man, I was five when that film came. Oh wow. The glory days. Yeah, all downhill from there. Exactly. <laughs> I, I had to watch the Spice Ball movie, of course, it's downhill. <laughs> but it was... I mean, we we talked about the cameos, and we talked about... Uh, I mean, we, we left out Bob Hoskins' weird thing, where Jerry Halliwell transforms into Bob Hoskins. Actually, phone booth. quite funny, I thought. Well, it was. Well, I that, it was is, really good. that is when another joke. That, power. Yeah. that was solid. Yeah, They're just... I think that works because Spears doesn't have to do anything with the camera. He doesn't have to move it or frame it any differently. He just needs the phone box on the right and the road on the left. So Bob Hoskins walk into the center, do the mm. Spice Girls piece, and then walk off. And that's really quick. I think where Spears' direction falls to pieces, though, is that it's all well and good framing a sitcom like Forty Towers, where the camera is on a set and just on a track going from left to right. It doesn't have to do much apart from the odd close-up. He's working 360 degrees in Spice World. 
Mm. So he's got this new plane. He doesn't realise that he can move the camera sort of around. And he tries to do it on the bus a few times when the sort of he's showing what the Spice Girls are doing and why they're themed like that. And it just doesn't work. And I think it's because he's going for all these static angles where it's very, not minimalist, but simplistic, mm. where it's sort of zoom, shot, cut shot, and that's it. There's no, I don't know, there's a couple Dutch angles in the in the club, and I thought that was a bit weird. Yeah. Just to, sort of just a tilted angle to show that there's a heavily pregnant woman on the balcony in a club. And it was, <laughs> right. Okay. But yeah, yeah. He, he's really lacking something in the direction department. And I don't think it's because like you said, he's a bad director for television. I think it's because he just he doesn't know what to do with these subjects. Yeah, I mean, you've, Spice World exists at the intersection of a few genres. Obviously, it's comedy. It also has a kind of action and a chase element. Yeah. It's also a musical, of course, and that yes, yeah. demands a great amount of, of visual style. So it's quite cruelly exposing someone who's come from this TV sitcom world to yeah. expect him to suddenly make, you know, this this combination of a hard day's night and the fast and the furious. I think that's a bit much. <laughs> it's it's such a great leap for him to make. It's mm. like I don't I can't think of anyone who would have fared any better in the directing department for this. I really Yeah. I don't know. And it's it's maybe, you know, maybe it was always doomed to fail because one of the things about 90s culture is that it is sometimes painfully ironic. And obviously there were some great directors in Britain at the time this was made, but someone like Danny Boyle isn't going to risk doing no, something as uncool not. as making a Spice Girls movie. So He was still riding the high of Trainspot and he couldn't go... He, he would have went the complete other way thematically. He's gone from dingy Edinburgh, grey and gloomy, very yeah. hard-hitting stuff to we're going to flaunt around London with the Spice Girls. It's such a, a jolt to yeah. make. Yeah, I, th I think everyone who was good back then had a career that was in some way founded on not being the kind of guy who makes yeah. movies like this. Of course, some I think of them Mike are... Lee could have done it. I mean, the big oh, fans yeah. of Sp Secrets and Lies, of course. He's, he's got the cast for it. He's, <laughs> he's got secret Mike Lee fans. In uh... oh, That's a good question. How different would this movie be if it was based up uh, from, like painstaking improvisations with the Spice Girls and say, Timothy Spall. How different Ooh. would that be? <laughs> well, I mean, I, honestly, uh, if, you, if you didn't have Meatloaf in there, Timothy Spall could, probably could have done the bus driver role. Yeah, I can see that because that's, that's a comfortable role for him to take. I mm. think whoever takes that role is going to, you know, pay off relatively well. There's two lines that Meatloaf has, the a relative setups to decent lines later on with Richard E. Grant. And then apart from that, he doesn't have to do anything. So I think Spall could have done that. I think yeah. if you're thinking about big actors at the time, maybe Jim Broadbent could have done that. I don't know, though. That seems sort of... His sort of style is a little slower than what what Meatloaf can bring to the table. <laughs> you but, just um, have the high-octane energy of Meatloaf. <laughs> Meatloaf's honestly a really good draw for this film. Mm. It, it's so left of field that it, it works. Because when I think Meatloaf, I don't instantly think, ah, oh, yeah, like the Spice Girls. So yes. it's just it's the fact that they've got, <laughs> a, again, like that bit of ballast where it's sort of completely out of the blue. Like Elvis Costello being in there with his sort of 
alternate rock and then appearing in a pop film. And Meatloaf is, of course, only a couple of years out from doing Fight Club here, which is a legitimately great performance. I forgot all about that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, that's the life of a jobbing actor, isn't it? One day you're in a David Fincher movie and the next you're Spike's Girls bus driver. It's not quite the career trajectory I'd want, but I'll take it if it's going. I mean, he just disappears partway through the movie. They steal his bus and then that's it for him. Yeah. I, I assume they just abandon him and he's he's left to walk the streets of London for good. That's it. <laughs> that's the, he doesn't know what to do without his Union Jack bus. Well, that that's that was that would have been the sequel. Meatloaf would have sought his revenge <laughs> on the Spice Girls. Uh, Meatloaf's bit also sets up that very weird UFO bit in the middle as well, which oh. is what I really didn't like that bit. Mm. I, I'd sort of I'd blocked all memory of it out of my mind. I think again, it's one of those sort of fantasy elements that you said about where it's they're, they're trying to combine that sort of zany fun with the pop scene of. Hey. <laughs> uh, they're trying to combine that zany comedy with the actual pop atmosphere of the time. Mm. And their thought is, oh, we'll do that bit in Life of Brian, where Brian gets a new UFO. Oh, and it yeah, doesn't work. Yeah. But again, it's sort of seeing what sticks and very little of it does. It, it's again that slightly anal problem I'm having, where this is something that will, like, do a Poirot parody and cordon off the fact that th- this is a parody. It is not happening with a big swirly yes. effect in and out. And then in the next scene, they'll just meet aliens and it'll be brushed under the carpet by next scene. And you think, uh, what's the point of having fantasy sequences if you live in a totally elastic universe? I don't understand. I suppose it's sort of, I mean, especially if you think Hugh Laurie was doing it in his contract, it'll have said, look, I'll be in this movie just as long as you make it very, very clear that this is not the real world. I'll do it (laughs) if it's fantasy. I'll do it if it's fake. I mean, it's such an odd scene as well. It's, Mm. you know, I mean, I've watched a little bit of Poirot, so I I get the gist of it. And then you've got, I think, is it it Jerry Harleywell again or is it Baby Spice? I think it's It's... Baby Spice because they do that recurring joke with their eyes, don't they? Yeah, the the joke of it is that, yeah, she could get away with it if she was the murderer in an episode of Poirot, is like the gist of it, yeah. It's a lot of setup for a throwaway gag, which they use, I think, maybe (laughs) twice. They use it with uh, the policeman at the end of the film, and it was Mm. like, oh yeah, they did do that earlier, I remember that, nice one. But other (laughs) than that, it's sort of, again, I don't know why it's, it's being done. The other thing about Emma Bunton in this is there seems to have been, I was going to say some miscommunication, but the writer of the script is Kim Fuller, who was who was the brother of Simon Fuller, uh, the Spice Girls manager. So oh. presumably he was hired because he knows this stuff inside out. I was going to say, yes. if this was a jobbing comedy screenwriter, my assumption would be that there had been some sort of miscommunication and the writer thought that Baby Spice was literally a baby. <laughs> yeah. Some of that stuff was really weird. It yeah. was just sort of a bad taste on the mouth. But 
because she she's talking about like she ha- her part of the bus she sits on a swing and she has a collection of teddy bears and it's i realize this is like a pg certificate movie and its audience is largely female but you can't get away from the fact that the spice girls were being marketed as sex symbols around this yeah. time and you look at this stuff and you think who who is this for because i yeah, don't like it i think so- someone's heard their nicknames in a writer's room and thought right posh spice wears only really posh dresses sporty spice has a bicycle baby yeah. spice well it's a baby and they've not looked any further than that. And I think yeah. that's the issue where it's sort of... I, I don't even remember what Mel B does in this film. I don't remember her sort yeah. of... She she's just there. a bit of a backseat, I guess, because when you were making a sort of PG certificate buddy movie, there's a very limited number of ways that you can work scariness into it. I suppose, yeah. They do that, oh, they do that really weird montage photo shoot with Dominic West. With Dominic West, yeah. Dominic God. West. God, who would have thought West. that that Lily James moped <laughs> thing would be the second most embarrassing <laughs> photo shoot he was involved in? I remember because he gets like one line where it's like, do the pause, yeah. that's it. That's his only line. And it's pro- he probably comes out of this film best, to be honest. Yeah. Yes. Elvis Costello has more lines than him. (laughs) It's funny because after I watched this, I found someone has uploaded to YouTube a collection of outtakes from a Polaroid commercial that the Spice Girls did when they were like signing up for everything. And there is a bit in that where the, the con- I can't work out the concept of the advert, but it seems to be like a Centrinian's takeoff. So, right. again, it's of that kind of dodgy yeah, it's- area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there is a bit where one of the photographer's assistants suggests that they like hitch their shirts up a bit and show a bit more midriff and undo their top buttons. And Mel B and Jerry in particular just chew them out for it. And it was fascinating comparing that to what I just watched because I thought in in many ways, this is the version of Spice World that I would like to watch. What happens when you get five pretty ordinary girls, make them the biggest stars in the world and have them marketed in this way that is sometimes pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, I think... Again, it's one of those sort of the concept is there, they've assembled all the pieces for it and then they just don't follow through. Mm. They, they don't manage to bring it all together. They don't manage to. And I, I suppose it's, again, we have to understand the audience for this sort of film where it's going to be, you know, me, me and you aren't going to go and watch this film at the theatre if it's ran. It's yeah. more, you know, a kids' film or it's predominantly the fans of the Spice Girls themselves are going to go and watch a film about the Spice Girls. Yeah. But. At the same time, I think it's like you said, where that sort of the the sex appeal is exploited to sell tickets. Mm. And I think it's done in parts here. It's not done a lot, which is commendable. But again, it's to get people in the seats. And it's sort Mm. of, it it does leave a a sour taste in the mouth. It's, I don't know, it's something, something doesn't sit right with the way they've gone about doing it. Even though the way they do it is, limited compared to what we see in sort of modern filmmaking 
Yeah, and I, I suppose there's also, you have to look at it within the context of how feminism and sexuality was represented in pop music at the time, where yeah. when the Spice Girls first appeared, I was like just old enough to start reading NME, so of course I was, I was very snobby about them, uh, because them were the days. Um <laughs> But it's it's also part of that snobbery was fed by the fact that there were like interesting feminist bands around in the 90s. I'm a huge fan of La Tigre, for example. I think Kathleen Hanna's amazing. And when the Spice Girls came out, their attitude was, oh, this is really fucking cynical. This is just like a bunch of pretty yeah. girls in crop tops who are saying girl power and were meant to accept this as a step forward in feminism rather than a really cynical, sexualized exploitation vehicle. And looking back, I sort of think, yeah, but as great as La Tigre were, they never got on kids' TV shows, did they? <laughs> and I think that's kind of the purpose of it for like a five-year-old girl to be watching Saturday morning TV and see five women who support each other and are strong and talk about how girls are powerful. I mean, yeah, if, if you're spending all your day listening to riot girl bands, it's not your thing, but it's not for you, like you said. I think it's... The Spice Girls had that sort of squeaky clean public image that the Beatles originally had. And mm. I think the more I've thought about it when you mentioned Beatlemania, the more musically very different, mm. but image-wise and the impact that they had, it's extremely similar. Where yeah. they were very marketable as not just a band, but as people, because mm. people were interested in what they were doing and how they acted and how they would respond to things. That's why Spice Girls sort of got their own movie, they were on kids' TV, they were all over the place because they had a marketability that nobody else did. You know, Damon yeah. Albarn's not going to be on Cheery Morning kids' cartoon shows doing <laughs> no. things like this. He's, <laughs> oh, he's not the right man for the noise. job. It's Beetlebum. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I mean, it's like, if you contrast sort of Spice Girls doing Cheery Morning kids' TV on a Saturday... Mm. With, you know, there was that Jarvis Cocker appearance on the Ali G show where he oh, did an yes. acapella version of Help the Aged. Yeah. Which was baffling. <laughs> but um, it sort of shows that audience is the very clear difference where, you know, Ali G versus kids' cartoons. Who's going to be watching kids' cartoons? Uh, children and their, you know, yeah. Yeah. very tired parents. Who's going to be watching Ali G? The more edgy indie band fans yeah. so it, obviously they've got the backing of a majority of people who like not only the music but the people themselves mm. so you know no wonder the film did you know pretty well at the box office yeah yeah and it, the other thing is i mean when one of the things that i was blinded to when the spice girls did come out when they you know, got a very negative reception from bands I loved. And, you know, sometimes deservedly. I was a big fan of Kinnicky back in the 90s. And I just, I appreciated Lauren Laverne and her friends for just barracking the Spice Girls for saying that Margaret Thatcher had girl power. Oh. Uh, their whole attitude was like, no, we're, we're from Sunderland. We will not have that. Yeah. Um, so fair enough. But when Wannabe first came out, 
and you had that video with you know them running around this I guess it was kind of like a I don't know what that set was meant to represent. <laughs> a, a house of colours. Um, but there, there was this automatic assumption that, oh, these, this band's for, like, boys to lech over. Because we'd, we'd seen Take That, we'd seen boy bands yes, like yeah. that, and they had a young girl fan base, so it made sense that the girl band must be for boys. And, in fact part of their legacy see how i bring this back round. i was going to say you've brought it back to the the beginner that's yeah. clever <laughs> part of their legacy part of the thing that i notice now is that everyone who talks about the spice girls having an impact on their life is female that whole yeah. idea that i just internalized that oh they, this band must be for boys because you know they're pretty and you know they wear crop tops was just not the truth at all. This band had a seismic impact on young women. And I I don't think it's unrealistic to say that part of the reason why you have so many interesting young female pop stars who've decided their own career in this country now might be yeah. because they watched Spice Girls videos when they were growing up. I think the, the Spice Girls, if we, if we move away from the movie, I think as artists, they do... It's light. It's sort of, you know, if, if you go into a club or a pub, it'll be on in the background. It's that sort of accepted notion that the Spice Girls, you know, they didn't make great works of art. They didn't make deep songs. They made, you know, pop tracks. They made mm. really good pop tracks, if I'm honest. You know, Wannabe is still a very good song. Um, and, and the Spice World album, again, quite good. But I think to understand that the Spice Girls are just sort of, more than their music the the music might be simple but the people behind it were you know while they might look factory made they've inspired a lot of people and they've they've done a, a lot of good mm. yeah yeah um i'm actually thinking about uh modern pop stars and the spikes girls i have to share my favorite fact that i came up with when researching this even more so than the gary oldman one uh, which is that Billie Eilish saw this movie as a kid, uh, but assumed that this was a fake band made for the purposes of a comedy movie <laughs> until 2017. Wow. It's, you know what? I can understand that. If you had no knowledge of British music and thought, oh, look at that. That's a bit weird. I mean, to an outsider. Yeah, it's going to be a niche reference for outsiders, but it might just be look, like looking at the Rootles, you know, without yeah. a Bible in there. So yeah. it's it it smacks of that sort of. I, I like I said earlier, there is a wholehearted nature to this film where it's these people set out to make an an honest shot at making a, a comedy film mm. and a musical, not just to promote their new album, but because you know they thought it was a good idea to make a movie. Mm. At the same time that there's this sort of amalgamation of trying to make fun of the genre that they're debuting in yeah. and also setting themselves up for a lot of the pratfalls that sort of damages their real world personas. You've got, they're literally playing up the stereotypes that on a bus where their rooms are themed to their one name. But yeah. in, in the reality of it all, they were you know very consistent musicians who put together some good songs inspired a lot of people and i don't think that gets across in the movie 
Yeah, because around this time, I mean, this is about five months before Jerry Halliwell left the band, which was a real kind of, it, it's one of those mad things where you look back on it and the news at tens kicking off with, Jerry Halliwell has left the Spice Girls. You think, sorry, was there, were there no wars going on that day or something? <laughs> um, but that that points to why this should have worked, because back in the late 90s, the Spice Girls was the soap opera that everyone was following. They must yeah. have had compelling personalities to engender this kind of obsession within, well, the world, frankly. But it, it, the film is just too much of a mess to really get it across. I think it's it's a shame as well, because... I, I did go into this film thing and th there is potential here for this to be, you know, relatively good. Mm. Musicians in the past have made good movies. You know, you've got the Beatles with Hard Day's Night and uh, and Yellow Submarine, sort of, you know, the likeness and stuff. And then you've got, you know, passion projects from people like David Byrne who did True Stories. It's it's not a hard leap to make from being a musician to an actor. And, and that's yeah. something we're seeing more and more these days so the Spice Girls are definitely sort of they're, they're primed to do a role or a movie like this I just don't think the potential is there from a creative standpoint I don't think it's all that yeah completely and I, I think part of it too is that although I, I do have a great affection for the 90s I can't not have an affection for the 90s it's when I grew up but it was too flip and either to really concentrate on what was interesting about the Spice Girls, which for me is captured in those Polaroid outtakes. You know, if the Spice Girls were around now, the whole movie would be about them upbraiding sexist photographers because people are yeah. more comfortable talking about issues in an upfront and sincere way. But definitely, yeah in the 90s it all had to be buried under like about seven layers of irony until you can't tell whether someone means it anymore it was sort of i mean that Britpop movement and the end of that where it inspired bands like Coldplay and radiohead we were seeing something similar in film there's yeah. this whole weird branch of films like notting hill or the full monty that mm. they're two very different films but they have a, that, that sort of same feeling to them very British, very, you know, you've got Hugh Grant in one, you've got, well, you've got Robert Carlyle in the other, but <laughs> he, I don't think he's British, is he? Oh, no, he is British, yeah. Brilliant, um, there we go. Yeah. It, it works, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you've got the full Monty with Robert Carlyle, you've got Notting Hill with Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant was the poster boy for British filmmaking, you know, he did four weddings and a funeral and then just skyrocketed from there. Yeah. Um, And I feel like the Spice Girls saw this and thought, we're, we're relatively popular. We could do that. And to be fair, I, I do believe that they could do that in mm. this period of time. I do think they had the potential to not take it and run, not like the Beatles did, but I do think they had what it took to make an acceptable pop comedy musical. Mm. But it's it's not quite there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it is more fascinating as a sort of artefact of a time than it, it yeah. is for a movie. Um, 
And speaking of artifacts of the time, uh, this is the question that everyone had to have a pre-prepared answer for in the late 90s. And now I think enough water's passed under the bridge that I can disinter it from its grave. Um, I'm sure you'll have thought deeply about it. Uh, Ewan, who's your favourite Spice Girl? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> oh, see, this, this is one of those questions where whatever you answer, you're wrong. It's you're going to annoy four fifths of the, the the population that know of the Spice Girls. It's like a Rorschach test, you know. It's it it just reveals something about you, whether you want it to or not. Right. I'm going to analyse this properly, and we're going <laughs> to we'll break it down. It can't be Ginger Spice because she left the band Quitter. very soon after yeah. this film. Quitter. Yeah. No, no respect for quitters. Yeah. I'm afraid to say. Mel B. No, because I remember <laughs> there's a there's a Charlie Brooker yearly wipe where he makes fun of a ad campaign. And oh, I just yeah. I can't get that out of my head. It was like so a, it can't what was that for? It was like a giant Mel B, wasn't it? It, it was, was um it was her fitness regimen thing and it was sort of that get fit it. with Mel B and she was like, get fit now, and then Charlie Brooker just cuts and goes, No, and that's all I remember about Mel B. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Can I say Richard E. Grant's my favourite Spice Girl? That'll do. <laughs> no, no, I'll... I think... Uh, I'm going to say Mel C. Mm. I don't think she gets enough credit for how much she, she impacted the band. Because she would, was sort of sporty yeah. Spice, and she was very, you know... Yeah, I think yeah. As, as well, it's sort of the, the closest one that I can relate to, you know? I mean, I'm not saying I'm sporty, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not scary or posh. Yeah, yeah, you're sportier than you are posh. You'll yeah. say that, yeah. <laughs> uh, or ginger. Um, who, who, who would you pick then, if you had to pick one? See, I can remember this as like sedimentary layers of my adolescence. And when Wannabe came out, I must have been about 12 or 13. So I liked Baby Spice the most because she was utterly unthreatening. It's like Lisa Simpson's non-threatening boys magazine for me. Um, and then as soon as the hormones kicked in, it was Jerry for, again, fairly unelevated reasons. And now I think you have got a point with Mel C, but I, I kind of think Mel B just gets a rough deal, man. I just... yeah. I wanted more of her. I wanted to see something of the woman who I saw like tearing strips off that Polaroid photographer, despite being dressed in a sort of uh, a frankly fetishized schoolgirl uniform, just marching up to him and reading yeah. the riot act. I admire that, and I, I think she's a survivor. You know, I think she's been through some unpleasant tabloid shit, and I respect yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. But that was that was that was the thing as well, you know. They they were sort of a cultural phenomenon and because they ushered in this new wave of music. The tabloids picked up on it, mm. and that was it. Like just like that, they were so invested in their lives and their personalities. It's it's very ghoulish, but unfortunately, that's that's the world we live in. Mm. I I wonder how much of the tabloid pressure helped or harmed this movie, where if 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 the Spice Girls are in the public mind constantly. Mm. And then they start seeing posters for the movie crop up. They're going to think, oh, those people from the front page of the Daily Star yeah. are in the cinema. I'll go and check that out. But And it's sort of, it's at the start of when that 
became a thing, wasn't it? Because previously the logic was that if someone is in the newspapers all the time, there must be a movie there. If people yes. read it in the newspapers, they'll watch it in the cinemas. And at some point that balance tipped. So now, uh, I, whenever I see a movie that features anyone who is in the public eye or any kind of recent story, whether it's like one of the thousand dramatizations of the Trump presidency that we're about to get or anything like that, I just curl up and die inside because I am already so sick of hearing about this and maybe you're right maybe Spike's world was the point at which that shifted yeah I think for me because I mean I wasn't alive at the time the Spice Girls were popular like uh, mm. I wasn't born until two years after this movie released so I sort of skipped that tabloid stage of uh, the Spice Girls like when when uh, when I was old enough to read newspapers and stuff <laughs> Mm. So Elton John was getting a lot of the flack in the papers when, when yeah. I was reading front pages. So this isn't a new thing. I just think it, it started getting more prevalent with the Spice Girls by the sounds of it. Yeah. And it was like you said, where it was Jerry Halliwell's left Spice Girls, get on the 10 o'clock news, that's the lead story. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it is kind of a shame because I think cinema can and should be something that reflects the society it's in, but it takes yeah. a long time to make a film. And when the bones of a story have already been picked clean, you know, you, you can't do that. But Yeah. I mean, they tried. They had that tabloid character. Mm. But again, like most of the subplots, it doesn't go anywhere and it just sort of fizzles out, really. Um yeah, but it, I think it, it's it's a good it's good to see that they tried to do it. Yeah, but... yeah, I think that that's a that's a pretty fair kind of epitaph for the movie, isn't it? It's it's not good, but you can see that there's people trying in it. Yeah, it's it's it by no means is a good movie, and it's not something I'd want to return to. But it's it's admirable that they tried, and I do think there's honest intentions from everyone involved to try and make a good film rather than a cash-in for the album that released. Yeah, which I learned uh, was recorded when they were actually on set, which basically makes that second Spice Girls album the Spice Girls equivalent of New Adventures in Hi-Fi by R.E.M. <laughs> it's, it's... That's amazing. Yes. It's... So they did a movie and an album more or less at the same time mm. whilst dealing with tabloid pressure and I assume, you know, touring the album. Yeah. That's, it's, it's a genuine feat of endurance to, to do so much in such a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've, like, like I say, when you go back, there was all that speculation about why Jebby left and did she clash with such and such a person? You know, was there interband rivalries? Was it because of someone they were dating? And when they talk about it now, they are pretty upfront about the fact that, no, we were just exhausted. We just yeah. couldn't do it anymore. And you think, yeah, sometimes the less mythic explanation carries a certain truth, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it's again, to compare them to the Beatles, the controversy around the Beatles splitting up and Yoko Ono mm -hmm. and John Lennon and Paul McCartney falling out, compared to the Spice Girls just saying, no, we, we were just quite tired, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> it sort of fizzles out all that controversy and the and uh, like you said, the mythical element to 
that ghoulish sentiment of tabloid where they're picking apart why why it's happened and stuff like that and then years later it's just oh we, we we're a bit tired we packed it in I think that there is a sense that it must be some bigger story because they were such like larger than life personalities and they were the focus yeah. of such attention. But in reality, there is, you know, there is going to be a limit to how much you can just pick girls in their early 20s out of obscurity and put them into this insane machine and have yeah. them want to do it for a long time. It's just a human oh, yeah. thing. It's everyone has their breaking point. I think they, they they did very well to get so far with such pressure mm. in such in such a flurry. And every now and then, there's like talk of a reunion, and there was one in two thousand and seven, which they played some dates, but it kind of petered out for one reason or another. But I will say this: that two thousand and seven reunion was announced live on stage by Richard E. Grant, oh. and. I just love the idea that Richard E. Grant is just the keeper of the Spice Girls legacy <laughs> He's now. He's secretly their manager in real life. <laughs> this acting thing's a front. He's actually the Spice Girls manager for touring. That's why he was behaving so weird when he got the Oscar nomination. He thought, oh no, this is going to blow my cover. <laughs> <laughs> he was so relieved when he didn't have to get out of the chair and stand at the stage and say, it's been a farce. I'm actually the manager of Baby Spice. <laughs> that was it. That would have been the end for him. Yes. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of Pop Screen, I think. Uh, do you just want to remind listeners where they can find you normally? Uh, you can find me on Northern Lights, Geek Show, obviously, and Cult Following. Mm -hmm. And I am on The Geek Show and Horrified. Uh, but until next time, that's your lot from Pop Screen. Uh, we'll see you next week.